You're listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a monthly podcast where we talk about new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. In this month's podcast, co-host Eric Moody is joined by recent John H. Martin Award winner Dr. Val Smith to discuss algal biofuels, their potential benefits, and their potential costs. I'm here today with Professor Val Smith, who is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology in the University of Kansas in Lawrence. He's also adjunct in the Department of Civil Engineering there. Interestingly enough, he did his bachelor's at the University of Kansas and then went on to get a PhD from the University of Minnesota with Dave Tillman and Joe Shapiro. At the University of Kansas, he's been involved in what's called the Feedstock to Tailpipe Initiative, and we'll hear some more about that in just a minute. But your research recently has uh, been focused on algal biofuels, or at least a component of your research has. So what are algal biofuels, and how are they produced? Well, you only have to look at any day's headline to realize we have a huge problem with energy, and we're talking about how well the U.S. can deal with its energy needs, and certainly the the planets, and is there such a thing as peak oil? Uh, Many people believe that we are looking at the end of our supply of petroleum, and certainly it's not infinite, and sometime in the future we're going to have to deal with that. So there's been a large push, if you will, to try to consider alternative kinds of feedstocks to create those fuels. You can make a variety of liquid transportation fuels from algae in the form of biodiesel, in the form of bioethanol, in the form of biogasoline, biomethanol, biobutanol, and even aviation fuels, which actually have been already tested, uh, flight tested. So it's a pretty pretty cool thing. In order to produce these things, obviously, if you look at any stream or any pond or any lake, they grow pretty amply. There's lots of nutrients typically in, right, in those right. water bodies, and it turns green. But that level of green, which is a kind of a tinge of green, is probably least two orders of magnitude less than what you want to have if you're going to try to produce this cost-effectively on a global basis. So you can grow it in things that are called closed photobioreactors, and these are basically clear tubular systems in which you can grow the algae and bubble them with CO2, and they'll grow nice and green. You can harvest them. Alternatively, you can grow these same sorts of algae in ponds. Oftentimes, these are called raceway ponds. They're kind of like a donut, like a raceway, and they circulate water that's mm, 20 to 30 centimeters depth. When they get really green, the light penetration is very poor, Mm -hmm. so they have to be fairly shallow. These algal biofuels have to come from an algal biomass feedstock, and whether it's grown in either the closed system or the open system, you have to find an ample amount of space, so you've got to have some land mm-hmm. that's not already got something on it. It has to be fairly flat land, so you can't have a steep slope, can't be rolling hills, needs to have that. In principle, if you want to avoid a food versus energy conflict, then you also ought to try to grow that algae on land that's otherwise unsuitable. So it's marginal land that you can't grow crops on. And this mass cultivation requires resources. And so, for example, you're going to have to have ample water. So you have to have a water supply, and part of that's going to be lost through uh, evaporation. You have to have massive quantities of nutrients, particularly nitrogen, phosphorus. And then also you may need or may wish to supplement with CO2, 
for example, you could use it from the flue gas of a nearby uh, energy power plant because the stimulation of algal growth from the excess CO2 can help increase your yield for a given supply of nutrients like N and P. Also need to have ample sunlight. You ought to have a, the longest possible growing season, so the, the productivity uh, per year is maximized in terms of yields of kilograms per hectare per year. You ought to have mild winter temperatures, so the frost-free days number is as, lo- as large as possible. And also, you have to have large capital investments because you have to create either a pond or a photobioreactor, and of course, that's all going to cost energy. Those harvested biomass yields of algae, uh, there's a couple of main things you could do. If you're interested in, for example, biodiesel or biogasoline, you could extract the lipids from the algae. Those are just plant oils, and the original, the very first diesel engine actually ran on plant oils. But you can take those lipids, those oils, and you can transesterify them chemically, and you can create a biodiesel that basically has most of the same properties as a regular petrodiesel. Or you could treat the entire biomass, you could dewater it, and you could get a slurry, and you can actually pressure cook it with a procedure called hydrothermal liquefaction that actually gives you a green biocrude oil that you can then basically process into fuels. So uh, let's get back to some of these features that are involved in algal biodiesel setups. You mentioned a lot of factors that are very important to the output of the the production of these setups, which is obviously very important. And, you know, to an ecologist, it sounds like some of these things might have ecological relevance. How did you sort of start making this link between ecology and the production of algal fuels? Really stems very much from my time at Minnesota, where I had input from Joe Shapiro, who in the 70s were working on something called biomanipulation that later uh, helped give rise to what we know about trophic cascades. And also I was very interested at the time in eutrophication, which is something I've done basically for almost 40 years in which you look at basically the consequences of, of massive supplies of nutrients for algal biomass, but also species composition. So when it was first suggested to me that I join a group to study algal biofuels, I realized that the two things that I could bring to bear were bottom-up and then also top-down. So, for example, I could use bottom-up principles to try to calculate or figure out the quantities, the supplies of nitrogen phosphorus that were needed to get the massive amounts of algal biomass that we might need in order to make algal biofuels competitive. In addition, most of the systems that are currently being used to cultivate algae for the purpose of creating biofuels are two trophic level systems. They contain the algae, which is the feedstock we want, Mm -hmm. and it's almost impossible unless they are in very carefully sterilized and controlled closed systems not to have a protozoan, a fungal pathogen, a viral pathogen, or if it's open to the sky, it's also possible for ducks to come over and drop off rotifers, paramecia, amoeba, and even daphnia. Mm -hmm. And of course, the daphnia is an extremely efficient herbivore. And what happens oftentimes in these two trophic level systems is that you get major crashes. So you lose 90% of your crop over a weekend. You're, you're happy on Friday, you go home for the weekend, come back on Monday, and you've got 10% of the greenness that you had before. And if you're thinking about the analogy with an industry that's trying to create 
something like a beer, you really wouldn't want to have over a weekend uh, a 90% drop in your output of the material you're trying to market. Right. There's a continuous demand for this, and you can't really have that interruption. And so it occurred to me that one of the ways to use knowledge of top-down principles is to add an, a third trophic level that is a predator that would consume those herbivores and thereby help minimize losses to grazers and thereby, in principle, maximize, or at least in theory, maximize the algal yields. So you've actually applied principles that we've learned from management of lake eutrophication where we have fish that consume plankton, that consume algae, and use that sort of in reverse to say, how can we maximize the production of algae? That's right, because the original trophic cascade stuff and the the work that Joe Shapiro did on biomanipulation was intended to keep the lakes as clear as possible. And so I did indeed flip it on its on its ear and, and turn it into a system that maximizes the yield, which is a little bit ironic. So you actually did conduct an experiment where you put fish, you used mosquito fish, into these systems and compared production uh, in the systems with fish and the systems that did not have fish but did have Daphnia. Yeah, that's correct. Actually, the, the group that I work with at University of Kansas, uh, we were fortunate enough to get a buy-in from the local wastewater treatment plant, and they allowed us to put a series of 10 cubic meter mesocosms, fiberglass mesocosms, in place at the facility. And we were actually able to treat those four mesocosms as large outdoor chemostats. We aerated them. We had a flow-through with a peristaltic pump, very large volumes of water, very unlike the laboratory-scale chemostats that I've used in the past, and we got them to be exceptionally green. The maximum amount of chlorophyll A was as high as 3 milligrams per liter, and that's many orders of magnitude higher than what one would typically find even in a eutrophic reservoir or lake, which might be 100 micrograms per liter. Mm. We did notice that in the control systems, as time went on, because these systems were inoculated with a a natural inoculum uh, from a local lake, and also they were completely open to invasion from the air and from any birds that might have come by, they became infected uh, with daphnia. And the chlorophyll biomass in those tanks dropped like a stone. It went down about 80-90%. In contrast, the two mesocosms which we added mosquito fish, Gambusia affinis, to, it basically safely controlled the daphnia. And as a result, we had, I think it was five to seven times more algal biomass in those plus fish than we did in the minus fish. So it was a very clear-cut and very happy, if you will, outcome that was predicted from standard trophic cascade theory. So we've talked a little bit about the top-down controls on algal biomass. Mm -hmm. What about the specific algal species that are used? How does that affect the production that you get? Are there advantages to using certain species or polycultures as opposed to monocultures? There are many advantages, I think, to using uh, monocultures. In fact, I would say probably hands down most of the systems that are currently in place and that are being tested typically have one or a very few numbers of species that comprise the algal cultivation unit. And many of the systems, not all of them freshwater, so some of them are marine-based. So you may have taxon X that is used either to create biodiesel or bioethanol, and that could be in a closed photobioreactor or an open pond. And typically this is either a genetically selected or genetically engineered uh, microbe or alga that may be engineered for having really high lipid content per cell or per unit dry weight. 
so that if you harvest X grams of dry weight, you maximize the lipid yield, or conversely, you have a bug that is engineered to uh, produce and excrete ethanol that can, can then be condensed in the closed system and then harvested. There are clear benefits to using monocultures. It's clear analog is in commercial farming, where you go out and you buy your seed corn or you, you buy your seeds of wheat or whatever, and you grow it up. Right. And the advantage of algae, of course, is instead of having, like corn, one major crop per year, you can have maybe one major harvest every two or three weeks, depending on the growth rate of the algae. Basically, one of the biggest problems in algal biofuels is separating the very small amount of algae from the very large amount of water. So it's a very energy-intensive process. And so knowing the bug helps you with knowing whether you can reliably harvest and process it. But one of the things that came to my mind a few years ago, and which I commented in the 2010 tree paper, was that there's a big literature out there that originally stemmed, of course, from the overyielding literature in vascular plants and, and um, agriculture, where to a large degree, the more species you have, there, there tends to be an increase in the overall yield. Not always, but, but oftentimes. So there's a clear signal that polycultures could be, if you want to maximize yield, might be of benefit. And there's been some experimentation also with algae that suggests that this is probably true. One of the other benefits potentially, not just maximizing yield, might be the fact that there is a diversity-productivity relationship, which I just went over, but there's also typically a diversity-stability relationship in which you have a benefit, a resistance, if you will, of polycultures to the vicissitudes of changes in light, changes in temperature. So if one species doesn't like the current temperature and drops in abundance, then there's compensation where another taxon that can live and grow uh, well at that under those conditions can take its place. And in principle, also, the more taxa you have, the more inherent variability you might have in resistance to pathogens or resistance to grazers. So to me, both of those aspects of polycultures have great promise because I would think that they would decrease the variability in your yield. So one thing that you mentioned was this use of genetically modified algae in cultures. Mm -hmm. And you recently had a paper about the subject in bioscience. Uh Are there any risks involved in using genetically modified algae? Is there any chance that they might escape into the environment? I'd have to say that those risks are pretty poorly understood right now. And also, at this juncture, given our limited state of knowledge, really hard to predict or quantify. In principle, the more you tweak a bioengineered organism, the more unlike it is to its wild-type clone. The parent stock evolved under standard environmental conditions. The new organism has been engineered to do something, to let's say to maximize its yield, maximize its photosynthetic rate, maximize its lipid content. Given the concepts, the well-understood and well-documented concepts of, of trade-offs, ecological and evolutionary trade-offs, then one would expect that the, the wild-type organism probably would be a better competitor in real world if released than would be a GE alga. Mm-hmm. which one would think would have some sort of a negative trade-off. So its maximum growth rate might be lower. Its ability to compete for light or nutrients might be lower. So in the best of all possible worlds, the GE alga, if released accidentally from whatever cause, ought not to persist in the environment. What's not known, however, is the degree to which that assumption is correct. Mm-hmm. So I would humbly suggest that that should be a big focus uh, of future research, uh, especially uh, as 
commercial ventures move forward with massive, we're talking millions and billions of gallons of cultivated water, massive quantities of cultivated algae, if they're GE algae, then we need to have, first of all, some safeguards. Closed systems are going to be safer than open ponds. But we also need to know, probably by doing explicit research with those organisms, and this may be difficult if, for example, it's a proprietary strain. Mm. So I think we should really think hard about making those kinds of explicit experimentations to test the assumption that they would fail if released. And, of course, this is a big, uh, interesting subject. The paper in bioscience stemmed from a workshop in summer 2011. The theme of the Society for Freshwater Science meeting in 2013 is energy production and aquatic biodiversity, understanding the threats and planning for ecosystem management. So why do you think that it's important to consider biodiversity and in particular the management of these ecosystems? It goes back to this assumption that if released, a GE alga would not become a stable part of the algal community in a natural system that's near, that's proximate to, proximal to the algal cultivation system. It would be one thing if it did persist several logs down as a a trace component, a rare component of the system. Mm -hmm. It would be quite another thing if unpredictably it actually, in the system to which it was inserted, it accidentally had a selective advantage. So, for example, what if it had the same alga that was selected for or modified to maximize its lipid yield, what if it was accidentally more grazing resistant than some of the other species that already existed in the system to which it's invaded? Mm -hmm. If it's a grazing resistant strain, then one could foresee possibly that it could become a dominant where it was not present before, and that would reduce the flow of energy through the food web because everything, all the ground would be changed underneath it, right? It's also conceivable and also needs to be studied the degree to which organism GEX, I'll just call it, a strain X that's genetically modified, can share its genes horizontally with other microbes. This is particularly true with cyanobacteria. So let's say if a genetically engineered cyanobacterium were released accidentally into a, a local stream, Uh, or into a local lake, what's the likelihood that the gene that it has would be passed on to other taxa, so acquired as a new gene, which would alter the fitness of the natural community? So even if it did not persist, the GEX, would it pass on other genes to other taxa that could persist? And one very unpleasant outcome might be if that gene, for example, stimulated somehow the growth of a toxin-forming cyanobacterium. Would the likelihood or intensity of blooms increase? Would the likelihood or intensity of toxic algal problems increase? These are entirely speculation, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility, and we should try to exclude that as a possibility if it's at all possible using careful theory and experimentation. So you've been working as a limnologist for a long time, studying algae and phytoplankton and natural systems. 
How did you get into this line of work? I, indeed, I think as since I was an undergraduate at KU in the, the early 70s, first was influenced by John O'Brien, who was just recently a new faculty member at the time at KU, and I took his limnology course, and it basically showed me really what I wanted to do for a living. Mm-hmm. I realized I was a then a chemistry major and was not eager to just spend all my life in the laboratory, and uh, suddenly I realized you could go out in the field and have a good time, get your feet wet, and enjoy science at the same time as doing something productive and drawing a salary. One of the things that I learned at Minnesota from Joe Shapiro and Dave Tillman was that I could do two things. Joe Shapiro was very much into applied limnology and eutrophication science and how could we modify the loading of nutrients or we could, how could we modify food web structure in order to maximize benefits to humanity, you know, decrease the problem with slimy uh, algal blooms and increase property values. And I did this for a really long time, and I continue to do it. But when Dave Tillman came along the, the, the year after I first arrived in Minnesota, I realized there was a, a, a real rich theoretical underpinning to limnology and a really, really, really rich underpinning to algal ecology. Uh, resource ratio theory in particular. And resource ratio theory actually is at the very center of what I do anymore, pretty much. So I've been able to take those, and then once I was approached at, at KU to join this consortium called the Feedstock to Tailpipe Program, I realized that I could bring to bear complementary skills and knowledge that weren't already present in the group. The group now contains ecologists, geographers, civil engineers, chemical and petroleum engineers, and mechanical engineers. My role I see as having helped provide the theoretical and empirical basis to try to help how better, to, to better understand how we can cultivate the algae that basically are the feedstock for making those biofuels. Is there any advice that you would have to someone who's interested in getting into the field of biofuels or thinking about uh, algal biodiesel production? Think broadly. I think that there is a pressing need for a far better understanding than we currently have uh, of the roles of biology uh, and also ecology in algal biofuels production. I was a member of a recent National Academy of Sciences committee to study the sustainable development of algal biofuels. We know quite a bit about life cycle analyses, how to perform them. We know a lot about how to, to design successful and probably cost-effective systems to, to process the, the algal biomass. We know how to design the cultivation vessels. I think that we need to know a lot more about the genetics, the molecular biology, the physiology, and the ecology of those organisms that we're trying to uh, grow up to create biofuels. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Eric. Bye. You've been listening to Making Waves, made possible with support from the Society for Freshwater Science. For more information about this speaker, the podcast, or the society, please visit us on the web at www.freshwater-science.org. Be sure to join us each month for another fresh idea in freshwater science. Thanks for listening.